Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be up here again. It's good to rejoice with you in worship. Uh, when you came in, you may have noticed all those tables outside. In part, that's because this is Local Missions Sunday. Uh, we do that annually where we want to highlight some of our local ministries that we partner with right here in Burnsville and a little bit farther out. Um, I think it's, it's God's, God's providence. We got to talk about pray for global missions earlier. So just another encouragement. We are on mission with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In today's message, um, it, it's not going to be your classic, you know, Matthew 28, Acts 1, Go Make Disciples of All Nations missions message. I did that last year through John 20. As I prayed, I felt like I want to get more to the heart. I want to allow the gospel to shape our heart before we even talk about missions. What's God doing right here? What are some barriers for us to do missions? And I, I'm just going to be very frank. Uh, this whole week, I've been wrestling with God in today's text. I've had great conviction, um, which is a good thing. Is the Holy Spirit moving upon me and challenging me and, and shaping me more and more to the image of our Savior. So my prayer is that the wrestling I've gone through this week and the conviction I've received, which is sweet and kind of the Lord, um, that you'd wrestle as well with me. I usually don't give my sermon a title, but today I'm going to give one, and it's this. It's all for Jesus. So if you're a person who likes titles, there you go. It's all for Jesus. A question you can ask yourself throughout this sermon is simply this. Am I going all in for Jesus? Or am I going all in for these idols that shape my life? Right? The question can be restated, and I alluded to it in my prayers. What do you treasure in life? What do you treasure? Because of this, there's something we, something we know from reading the Bible and looking at our own lives. The battle for what we worship does not cease on this side of heaven. Sometimes idols are easy to identify in, in your life. If you just kind of did, did an inventory of your heart, they can be easy to identify. Sometimes it takes discernment. It takes heart work to try to figure out, you know, what is a good gift from God that we are to enjoy, and sometimes that can slip into an idolatry. That takes discernment. Here's an obvious example of idolatry in history. After God had brought Israel out of Egypt and freed Israel from slavery, they eventually found their way to the foot of a mountain called Sinai. It would be at this place where Israel would, would encamp and God would use Moses to, to speak to the people. You might remember Exodus 20 when God spoke the first of the Ten Commandments to Moses saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses would then relay all of this to Israel in the next 12 chapters in the book of Exodus Moses found himself on Mount Sinai receiving more commandments from God. It was also during this time when God made another covenant with his people. 
there came a point during this time period when Moses wasn't in front of his people because he was in front of the living God, and the people became impatient. And in Exodus 32, we read one of many stories that was and is a perpetual sin of humanity. This is a tragic story. Here it is. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings and the gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings, the gold, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and bought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. The people of Israel replaced worship of the living God for a golden calf. So you see what happened in Exodus? They became impatient, couldn't wait, and so they made a golden calf. The people of Israel had replaced the worship to the living God for a golden calf. And if you read through the Old Testament, this is a constant sin pattern for God's people. And I think when we look around in our culture, let's be honest, not much has changed. Instead of a golden calf, we have stadiums. Instead of worshiping the living God, we worship ourselves, right? Because of the sin of idolatry, humanity wants to provide its own answers to life's most pressing questions, questions that come up in today's passage in the Gospel of Mark. So this morning, we're going to read Mark 10 and the story of the rich young ruler, or the rich young man. In in my estimation, it's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible for the 21st century American church to come to terms with. If taken seriously, which I hope we do, it forces us to evaluate our priorities. What do you prioritize in life? It causes calls us to action. It addresses um, the idols in our life and exposes in our heart what we truly treasure. Mark 10 is going to challenge us to consider what it means to deny the self for the sake of someone greater. Today's story from Mark is going to have us ask the question that I asked earlier, am I willing to go all in for Jesus? The Bible speaks to something different than what the prevailing culture is teaching and showing and 
wanting us to gravitate towards. The things in our culture fight against itself and in a sense against God for you to prioritize a possession, money, a gadget, perhaps pleasure over everything else. That's how a company like Apple, right? Y'all got your iPhone? I got my iPhone right here. Where's that? Grab your gadget. A company like Apple, they've become so successful. It's because millions and millions of people are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for the products that they offer. And if Apple and a myriad of other companies had their way, I'm guessing they would prefer you to prioritize their product over the living God as well, to worship their golden calf. So by the time I'm done, I think this story is going to cause, us, cause one or two reactions from each person in this room. The first reaction is that you will become sad while clinging to your treasures. This is where I received great conviction this week. God was kind to reveal some of my own idols in my life. So that's the first reaction. Or you will rejoice because you realize the greatest treasure that you could ever have or ever need is Jesus. Two very different reactions that lead into two totally different directions. So, before, be, before reading the text from Mark 10, I want you to see a contrast that the gospel writer Mark aims to show us. The, the contrast in these verses uh, begins before Mark 10, 17. I won't read it, but if you put your eyes there, you're going to be seeing that in order to receive the kingdom of God, to be saved, you have to have received faith like a child. In the story of the rich young ruler, a similar issue is at hand with the question being asked, how can a person obtain eternal life? But instead of childlike faith, we're going to see the opposite. So with this in mind, let's now read what prevents faith from growing deep roots within the human heart. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark 10, verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. I have no doubt that you see the tension created in this passage by Jesus, right? But let's work through this passage to see how Jesus removes the tension. The geographical context of this story is the east side of the Jordan River to the south, if you were looking at a map of what is today Israel. This last trip to Jerusalem for Jesus would be the last he would make before he would be put to death. This story is not a parable. It's not a story Jesus made up in order to make a point or to teach a lesson. It's a real story that is also told by Matthew and Luke. It's a real story that has major implications for the 21st century American church. 
And at the center of this story is the question that most people have pondered at some point in their life. How does a person have eternal life? So to ask the question differently, how is a person saved from hell and saved from eternal separation from God? The answer to this question will reveal what this man in this story prioritized in his life and what he thinks about his stuff or his possessions in life. And we can't even talk about the eternal treasures as mentioned in verse 21 or the temporal opportunities to use our treasure until we address the primary question presented to Jesus by this rich young ruler. So in order to aid in our study in this passage, I'm going to apply three headings. And I've already said them, but here they are. The first one is eternal life. The second two is eternal treasures. And the third is temporal opportunities. From the first heading, which I'll spend most of my time, will flow the other two headings. Before we throw the rich young ruler under the proverbial bus for his final response to Christ, let, let me commend him. Unlike the times when Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus with questions, I think the motive of this man was decent. Where Pharisees and Sadducees constantly tried to mislead and challenge the authority of Jesus, I think this rich young man came to Jesus with a degree of humility. The fact that this man ran to Jesus, verse 17, is stunning. Because people of stature during that time, which this man was, do not run. Not only this, but at this point in the Gospel of Mark, the religious leaders of the day had rejected Jesus as a teacher and prophet. This man ran to this disgraced prophet and teacher in public view. We don't know where the rich man came from or if he had a prior experience with Jesus. But while other religious leaders rejected Jesus, it's clear he had an understanding of the greatness of Jesus as a teacher. And so the man ran to him. Just imagine yourself running, and then you get to Jesus on, on his knees. Out of respect, he knelt before Jesus. On the surface, it is commendable that this man approaches Jesus the way he did. Um, and then he affirms Jesus with respect by beginning to say, Good teacher. Although misguided, this was a fine way to address Jesus. And using the word good, the rich young man was recognizing Jesus as a, as a virtuous person. But Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, verse 18. You read that you know, for the first time, you're like, whoa, what's going on here? This is not the response we would expect Jesus to make. But Jesus is trying to expose something within the heart of this rich young ruler. One would assume that if Jesus is God, him being called good is, is correct. However, this man did not know Jesus was the Son of God. And so Jesus wants to redirect his understanding to what is truly good. This man needs to stop trying to understand goodness by virtue and understand goodness as it pertains to who God is. He viewed goodness as it pertained to keeping the law. 
He viewed Jesus and called him good because he thought Jesus was also, also a virtuous man keeping the law. And so this reveals the fundamental issue with this rich young ruler. His definition of goodness is about what he does and what he sees other people doing. The problem is this definition of goodness is void of faith. And so what Jesus is doing and what this rich man does not realize is that Jesus is trying to get him to see beyond the temporal world, this, the earth. To define goodness by what he does not see. Hence, Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. In, in addition to addressing his faulty and virtuous definition of good, Jesus is also saying, not only is no one good but God, but all people are sinful and bad. This rich young man, like so many before him and after him, is going to hell believing that he is good. Let me just pause for a moment and ask, do you believe that you are a good person, right? We use the word good all the time. This last Wednesday at our next-gen senior high study, this, this question came up. Uh, this question did not come up as it relates to this passage, but to something else that we were studying. And Amy Green asked everyone the question, how many of you, asking the students, how many of you have friends who believe they are good or believe generally that people are good? And if I recall correctly, every person raised their hand. Right, got a head nod, yep. Everyone raise your hand, yep. Most people generally believe they're good. It's how I grew up. And yet, Jesus says this is not the case. Because of sin, no one is good. Only God is good. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 quotes Psalm 14, which is the same passage Jesus would have had in mind here. This is what Paul says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Apart from God, there is nothing good in us. This is why we constantly preach the gospel here at church. Because our only hope to be good is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Period. After addressing Jesus as a good teacher, the rich young ruler asks, so what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or to say it a different way, what must I do to be saved? They're asking the same questions, different terms. And again, this is a fine question. It, it does reveal the longing and emptiness in this man's heart. But Jesus needs to further challenge this man's understanding of goodness. He says, you, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. Jesus cites commandments 6 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. Scholars refer to this as the second table of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that have to do with relating to other people. In other words, in Jesus' response to the rich young man, Jesus begins with the easy commandments, 
the ones that even non-Christians sometimes keep just as a matter of civic virtue. At, at this moment, Jesus said nothing about commandments one through four, the commandments that govern how we relate to God, the commandments that can only be kept with hearts that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The rich young ruler responds by saying, I've, I've kept all these since I was in my youth. Now, it, it might be tempting to, to question this rich young man's um, understanding here. Did you really keep them all perfectly? But if I gave him the benefit of doubt, I would imagine at this point in the dialogue with Jesus, he was quite relieved. Perhaps he was, he was thinking, eternal life is mine. But again, this man's understanding, inability to understand the law and the commandments reveals he does not understand true goodness. In reality, this man had no idea he was a lawbreaker, a sinner, and worthy of death and hell. He, he had his commandments checklist, right? And he was ticking them all off. However, the rich man was mistaken. He did not understand the gospel read about in the Old Testament. He did not rightly understand the law. And Jesus is going to show him how he hasn't kept the law. But for that, and initially I thought this was like a parenthetical statement by, by Mark. But we read something about this, about the affection Jesus had toward this misguided legalistic sinner. I, I didn't catch this until I was in my studies this week reading this passage. Even though Jesus knew that this man had no idea what it means to have eternal life, it says in verse 21, and looking at him, Jesus loved him. He loved him. Matthew and Luke tell of this story, but only Mark sees the need to include the emotion of love in Jesus' response to this man. Why? It seems to me that Jesus obviously felt compassion for this man. As I've already said, I don't think this man was outright arrogant, sinful, yes, but I think he came with a measure of humility. It seems to me he really wanted to know about eternal life. This man was thoroughly lost, and in God's kindness, he meets the lost right where they're at with compassion and love. One commentator says it like this. Verse 21 is one of the most touching and tender verses in the Bible, just as verse 22 is one of the most tragic. There was a sincerity and earnestness about this young man that moved the heart of our Lord. His divine heart of love reached out because this man made in his image was so very near to the kingdom. Verse 21 is, is touching, right? But just as Dr. Aiken says in this quote, verse 22 is tragic. Jesus shoots it straight to this misguided, sinful, law-breaking rich man. It's one line that is going to reveal what he truly values in his life and what he set his affections on. Jesus says, you lack one thing. You've kept the commandments. Great. But you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven, Jesus says. And then these words, come follow me. 
all that stuff you have, put it aside and come follow me. That's the tragic verse, 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions or property. So let me get this straight. We have a man who at the very least tried to keep the commandments. He grew up in a Jewish home, went to youth group. He knew his Bible, and that wasn't good enough to obtain eternal life. Why? He idolized his possessions, his stuff, his property over Jesus. And so he walked away. He walked away disheartened and sorrowful. The, the, the NASB translation says it like this. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving. Have you ever grieved before? This man went away grieving. For he is one who had much property. Now notice the different emotional responses between Jesus and this rich young man. Jesus, knowing this man was not honoring God, still showed him love. This man, when he found out the truth about how to obtain eternal life, walked away sad and green. This rich young man, a lover of his treasure, could not see that the greatest treasure he could ever have was right in front of him. If the 21st American 21st century American church, this local church, desires to honor God, she needs to realize the significance of the rich young ruler's response. If the church wants to thrive, she needs to stop idolizing possessions and money over Christ. And if you think to yourself, yeah, that's a prosperity gospel problem, I'm telling you, that's not what I'm talking about. Solid, theologically sound churches are functionally living out the prosperity gospel. I am the first culprit here. That's what I said earlier about this is a tremendously convicting text for me. So we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler. I think what's happening is, in a sense, Jesus is taking this rich young ruler and us to the first table of the Ten Commandments. Commandments one through four. It's as if Jesus is saying, you say that you have kept the commandments, but what about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Have you kept that one? We, we know the answer. He, the man valued his treasure over Christ. To say it simply, this man did not prioritize his life in the right way. And Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine that all you have is me. Am I really enough? Are you willing to put your wallet before my feet every single day? While I was writing this sermon, one of my favorite worship songs came to my mind. Um, all I have is Christ. Um, I love that song. And I asked myself, when I sing this song, am I putting conditions on the lyrics? 
When I say all I have is Christ, am I putting conditions on that? All I have is Christ if dot, dot, dot. If I have dot, dot, dot. Or do I truly believe that if all I have is Christ, I still have everything? This man in Mark 10 had harbored hope that he could find his own way to heaven. And when he realized it was out of his control and the cost was too high, he walked away. It turned out that this man had no sense of someone bigger than himself. He had no idea of the meaning of true goodness. And as a result, he was left with his idols. Now, I think, I think it's proper to ask, is Jesus providing us with a universal rule, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying that anyone who wants to be saved and obtain eternal life must divest everything they have, become ascetic, and take up a vow of poverty? I don't think so. You don't get saved by lowering your bank account. You get saved by getting rid of your idols. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't condemning wealth and commending poverty. The point is, wealth breeds confidence in oneself and has an addictive quality, along with a myriad of other things in life. For some folks, you just got to pull out your phone. And so as Americans, myself included, who find ourselves living in the most prosperous time of human history, we've got to make sure our hearts do not make our affluence an idol. Again, this is a hard message. I said earlier, it's one of the hardest texts for Christians in this country to come to terms with. Because it's attacking the very things we grip onto. It's not just the money we have, it's what we purchase with our money. It could be our time. And the way to fight the idols in our life is to focus on the treasure that we have, the treasure that is to come. And by viewing our affluence as an opportunity to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what Jesus tells us to focus on when it comes to fighting idolatry. Which are my second and third headings. One part of Jesus' response to the rich young ruler had to do with the theological reality of heaven. I would imagine that this was hard for him to grasp, and sometimes it's hard for me to grasp. Jesus says, give all that you have away to the poor, and in return, so give it all away, and in return, you get treasure in heaven. So let's, let's, I just had to be honest with myself for a moment. We are creatures who desire to see instant returns for our investments, right? You give a dollar, you want to know what you're getting back. Tax deduction, Whatever. And I say there's wisdom to invest wisely. Um, the parable of the talents from Matthew 25 rings true. So what is Jesus saying here? Uh, Matthew 6, 19 to 21 is helpful. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But 
lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Matthew 6 gives us the story of the rich young ruler, I think, in a nutshell. You have two options for how you use your treasures. You invest into your own earthly kingdom, which will eventually be destroyed, or you invest into a heavenly kingdom where there is heavenly rewards. Randy Alcorn um, put a book called Heaven. It's a helpful book if you haven't read it. Um, he helped me understand what are you talking about here when you talk about treasures in heaven. You bump into it all the time in the Gospels. Treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven. What, what is that? This is what he says about treasures in heaven. God is watching. He's keeping track. In heaven, he'll reward us for our acts of faithfulness to him, right down to every cup of cold water we've given to the needy in his name. And he's making a permanent record in heaven's book. Now, I agree with that. The motive for our faithfulness to God does not grant salvation. The gift of salvation can only be done through God's electing grace by changing the human heart to trust in his atoning work on the cross and in his resurrection. All this needs to be believed upon by faith. However, the motive of our faithfulness to God is a response to the work of saving grace already done by God. And so as we respond in faithfulness, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We, we don't talk much about that because sometimes we just don't know what to do with it. But I think, I think Randy Alcorn's right. With that said, beyond these treasures, whatever they are, none of it compares to the greatest treasure that we could ever have, which is Christ. He is our greatest treasure. Right now, we believe by faith that Christ is our greatest treasure, but someday faith, brothers and sisters, will become sight, and we will see him face to face, just as we sung this morning in some of our lyrics. We will see him face to face, our greatest treasure, right in front of us as we worship. No more idols, no more sin, no more battling, worshiping the greatest treasure this world could ever know. There will be a day, face to face. Yes, there will be heavenly treasures, and yes, Christ is and always will be the greatest treasure of our life. As a church, we also need to look for the temporal opportunities. Again, we're trying to fight against the things that we cling on to, the idols in our life. And part of that fighting is that we look to Christ as our greatest treasure, find all of our hope and desire in Jesus. It's one way to fight. Second way is that we look at the things we do have and say, what are the opportunities to serve God with what we have and be a part of advancing the kingdom of God right here on earth? What can we do with what we have? It's not mine to begin with. It's his. So the first question shouldn't be, how do I invest? Although that's a fine question. The first question really should be, God, what do you want me to do? 
What do you want me to do with this? How can I serve you with this? What kind of opportunities lay before me? Because this is really about you, God, not me. Before expounding the final heading, I want to allow Tim Keller to provide this segue. Man, this is a great quote. The heart of the gospel is about giving up power, pouring our resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. What Keller says is true, and I think when you read the gospels, it confirms this. And so it is no wonder Jesus' response to the rich young ruler was to, okay, you want to follow me? We'll see where your treasure is. We'll see what you truly value. Give it all away to the poor. What can we take away from this? What we can take away from this is if we prioritize Jesus over everything else, if he is our treasure, then when we look at this book and ask, what does Jesus value? What does Jesus care about? We can get some direction. When the church answers these questions, she knows how to respond. You know, one simple response is that's why we have a local missions Sunday. We have a global missions Sunday. It's why we highlight specific ministries, trying to figure out ways to respond to God. In a very real sense, we, we highlight specific ministries so that we can put our money, our time, and our energy where our mouth is. We want to show God, you are our greatest treasure, so these treasures that I have are yours. What do you want me to do with them? We want to be a church that is going all in for Jesus, whatever that looks like. Going all in. I'm not a poker player, right? Don't play. I lose all my money that way. I want to lose it in a different way, by going all in for Jesus. It's five cards in poker. J-E-S-U-S, Jesus, all in. <laughs> so, we've identified several ministries that are about caring for the vulnerable, right, the poor, those in need, and ministries love to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. They care about what Jesus cares about, and that's why we support them. So what, what I'm going to do real quick is that I'm just going to simply name off these particular ministries. I'm just asking you to prayerfully consider what does it look like to get on mission, join these particular ministries, to advance the kingdom of God, To show that our greatest treasure is Christ, and therefore these earthly treasures can be used to advance the kingdom of God. So here they are. Some of these are familiar to you. If you're a member here, Amnion, Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. Since 1991, um, they provided Christ-centered, compassionate, and free services to women and men who are facing unplanned pregnancies and lives. In a few minutes, you can go in the hallway. You can chat with people. What does it look like to care for the most vulnerable, namely unborn babies? And there's, there's ways to get involved and support. There's a banquet coming up. 
uh, Youth Impact Racing, right? Very different ministry. Um, Adam Broccoli in 2013 started this ministry, trusting in God to grow the ministry. And my, how has it grown? I don't remember the numbers, but Adam was telling me all the kids that are, that are coming to Youth Impact Racing. Now, they race go-karts, and that's, that's fun, that's good. But what are they really doing? Is it just racing go-karts? No. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with youth. And Adam was telling me what he shared last week and what they're sharing this week. And it's all about Jesus. And that's, that's a man who put his money, his time, and his energy where his mouth is, going all in. His, his treasures are all about advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, together for good. Together for good creates pathways for a local church to come alongside vulnerable children and families in Christ-centered ministry. Again, caring for those in need. Let's say a mom and a dad, or just a mom oftentimes, needs a break for whatever reason. And the church can come alongside and say, I'll take your kids for the weekend. But several members in this church do that. I'll take your kids, give you the break. What a great opportunities that exist, not only with the kids, but with these parents, or oftentimes parent, to share the good news of the gospel, to show that the only lasting hope is found in Jesus Christ. Going all in in ministries like Together for Good. Cars. Cars launched in September of 2015, which Hagen leads that. They've worked on over 100 cars for those in need, especially single moms. Over 100 cars. I didn't even know where my gas tank's located. And these guys are working on cars. It's wonderful. For those in need, over 15 members from Sovereign Grace, this, this church, along with others, have helped out at various times. And they need more people to come help. Um, they, would, they would love people to, uh, people to help be a mechanic, an assistant mechanic, auto parts, store runner. It's probably me. I'll get your parts and run the store. It's probably all I can do. Food preparation, child care. Uh, there's great opportunity for outreach. Oftentimes people will come, and Mitch and the guys will be working on the car, and, and uh, Becky's in the kitchen doing hospitality, <clears throat> and people are just there waiting, waiting. Talk about an open door to share the love of Christ with someone. They have nowhere, nowhere to go because the car's getting worked on. Are you kidding me? Show hospitality. And show the gospel. Unbelievable opportunity. Uh, two more. Prison fellowship. Prison fellowship we've been doing since I've been here. Uh, at least, uh, believes that every person is made in the image of God, that no one is beyond his reach. Yes, and yes, and yes. No one is beyond the hand of the Lord to be saved. And so gals from this church go to the Shakopee Correctional Facility to minister and to preach the gospel to those who are desperately in need. They have hope, no hope, seemingly. They're in prison. And these gals come and say, I've got the greatest hope you could ever have. Trafficking justice. And trafficking justice is a group in the Twin Cities comprised of churches, faith-based organizations, and individuals who have come together to fight for freedom for what we call modern-day slavery, also known as human trafficking or sex trafficking. We partner with them because we want to see 
men and women set free. Men who are doing the trafficking and exploiting women both need to be set free for different reasons. And then I'm just reminded from the announcements, the Bridges course, right? Sign up tomorrow. Do the Bridges course. Think about, okay, in Burnsville at the very least, in Twin Cities, largest Somali population outside of Somalia, opportunity to learn about how, how, do, I, how do I talk with my neighbors who are Somali with the gospel, what do I do? What does that look like? Join the Bridges course. Equip yourself and join. So these are organizations that we love and have the privilege to partner with. By partnering with these organizations, we are saying yes to issues that matter to Jesus. It's an opportunity to show that we treasure Christ. We treasure what Christ loves. And we say no to the idols in our life and move forward to advance the kingdom of God. These ministries are just a small opportunity to express our heart to go all in for Jesus. So I ask you to humbly pray. What does that look like? What does it look like not only in, this ministry, in those ministries, but in this church? Put away the idols, trust in Christ for all things, and, and go all in.